0: Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad y'all are here. So this morning, we're doing our series, Interview with the Recovered Drunk. Um, And we have my good friend Colleen on. Um, So a little bit about how I know Ms. Colleen. I don't want to tell her story, but y'all hear me talk about the 2-4 a lot. I feel like everybody who comes on, I know somehow through the 2-4, and you guys know how how much that place means to me. And Colleen is no different. I met her at the 2-4, and she was actually um, a resident there while I was working there. And then after she left, uh, we became very, very close friends. And now she works there. And I remember whenever she got the job, I was just so excited, not only for her, but for the residents, because I knew that she was going to do a good job. And I knew that the residents were going to be very, very blessed to have her. And she's one of my best friends today. And so I'm so excited that y'all get to be on here and meet her. And so Colleen, I don't... You've never done this before, but I think you've listened to a few, so you kind of know what to expect, but if you can just start off giving us a little bit of background information about yourself to qualify you as an alcoholic and what led you to Alcoholics Anonymous.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. So my journey has been a very, I consider, long one because uh, it took me a lot of attempts to actually achieve some long-term sobriety. Um, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in a dysfunctional home, and by that, my father was an alcoholic, um, and a lot of that alcoholic chaos surrounded my childhood. Um, you know, I'd be at my grandma's asleep, and he'd come pick to pick me up, and my grandma would see how drunk he was and make excuses, and there was just a lot of chaos in my childhood of, um, just uncertainty in normal kind of in normal everyday life. Um, I think that I picked up my first drink at 14 or 15. It was casual, you know, but I do remember liking it, you know, and also the ideas around getting that drink, the secrecy, the thrill, the exhilaration, um, the behavior around drinking was, was exciting to me and I wanted more of the behavior around it, uh, you know? And I continued to drink throughout high school. Um, I think that I was a full-blown alcoholic by the time I was 17, um, you know? In high school, I was daily drinking, I was sneaking to get it, I was smoking pot, I was doing all of these things. Um, and because my family was so chaotic, I wasn't monitored well and also screaming for attention. Um, So there was this hope I think behind it of like any attention is attention whether it be good or bad. Um, And so almost at times like wanting to get caught or wanting to be in trouble um, just to get some attention. I went to my first treatment center at 20 or 21. You know, I didn't, so I almost didn't graduate high school. Uh, 11th grade, I got kicked out of the school I was in. 12th grade, I went to my first year of public school, and I almost didn't graduate, but I was able to make some things up. You know, my parents had wanted me to to go to college. Another part of me that I think is defining is um, I have pretty severe learning disabilities. I'm dyslexic. And so another area where I felt different than the other kids and not good enough and less than was in school and education. And I was always like, in hindsight, I think that it was misunderstood, but it was always Colleen's not trying. She won't sit still. She won't do her work. She is smart, but can't accomplish, you know? So I felt misunderstood around school events too. I went to boarding school school that was geared toward dyslexia in 10th and 11th grade got kicked out of there come home my senior year and at that time my parents hadn't really had control of me you know so senior year i just did whatever i wanted i rarely made it to school on time i didn't know anybody so i'd eat lunch in the bathroom um i I was just very conflicted internally by the time i was a senior in high school Anyways, I I tried to go to college. I had no desire to be there. I kind of faked it and partied the whole time. Um, And by 21, I was in my first treatment, you know? Um, I had so much guilt and shame. I waited till my parents went out of town. I called my ex-boyfriend who was a full-blown addict and I asked him how to get into treatment. And I went to treatment without anyone knowing. Um, I had insurance at the time so I could figure that out. You know, and I didn't get it then, and I didn't get it for another 15 years. I, you know, would have these the first few treatments, I wasn't as serious, but I'd start to have these like consequences and broken friendships and failures in jobs and schools, and all of these areas in my life were falling apart. And I knew that I should be sober, right? Because that's the right thing to do get it together. Um, If I didn't drink as much, people wouldn't be mad at me the next day. If I didn't drink so much, I wouldn't wreck cars or I wouldn't, um, I'd hold a job. You know, all these things showed me that I should probably not drink so much, um, but I couldn't manage that, you know? Um, And I also had this, what I now know, solution that was working for me because my internal condition needed to be treated and the alcohol was working for me despite the consequences that were occurring. You know, I'd quit drinking for a little bit, whether it be a detox, rehab, some sort of like high resolve that I was gonna stop drinking for a little bit, right? And at some point the internal feelings got so heavy, whether it be anxiety, depression, fear, loneliness, whatever the case may be, the feelings became so overwhelming that I needed a solution and I continued to turn back to the alcohol, you know, I remember being at, so I bounced around the country a little bit, I went to Delray Beach, Florida to try to get sober, Um, so I was not in my hometown, I was at a treatment center, I get out of a 30-day treatment, I get into this halfway house and it was like, this is going to be it, you know. I was absolutely positive that this was going to be the time um, and I'd get the job and I'd go to meetings and I would do like all of these things, but internally I, I didn't, first of all, I wasn't inviting God into all areas, but I, I didn't know what to do to fix how I felt inside, you know, like, so I could get the step one part of it. Um, I was okay with the step two part of it a little bit, but there was a piece of me that was unwilling to completely surrender um, and know what to ask for. So it wasn't until I came to Texas, I came to Texas for a treatment center. um, And actually I'll back up as to how I got to Texas. So this happened for 15 years, right? Right. And I'd put together two years and go out or 90 days and go out. I was very good at 90 days. That was pretty much the length of time that I could stand being sober. Um, So I I was at another 90 day stint and there was this lady who had this house in Cleveland um, who so was so instrumental in getting me to Texas. Um, and, and she was somebody who described her alcoholism like I drank, right? She, she was the person who would not drink all day, but at five minutes before the liquor store closed, she'd throw her kid in the car seat and rush to the liquor store, right? And I drank like that too. You know, I was the person who is literally at the liquor store throwing up stomach vial in the parking lot trying to not throw up for just five minutes to walk in to get that next bottle. Like my alcoholism was so physical, so emotional, so spiritual. Um, I could not not drink, you know. Um, I was working for a car dealership and I had this like odd shift, like 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. So my lunch break was at four o'clock. And during one of those 90 day stints, I was good for about the first 50 days, you know. And then all of a sudden at my four o'clock lunch hour, I'm like, let me just go to the liquor store and buy something to keep it in my trunk, right? And so for a couple of weeks, it was stayed in the trunk until I got off at seven. But all of a sudden that four o'clock lunch break, I was drinking, I was drinking at four o'clock, working at a car dealership. And I'm sorry to say, and ashamed to say at this point, delivering people's cars drunk, you know? Um, and, and that is so, so powerless, you know? Um, so I was living in this lady, Erin's house. She described her alcoholism in a way that I could relate to because at times I would think to myself, like I would want to get sober, but inside I'd be like, there's something wrong. There's some reason I'm not getting this. Like I must be more alcoholic than these people. You know, I must have it worse Um, because I just had gotten into so much shame about it and, I relapsed in Aaron's house and got caught. I had been at the car dealership. I came home at 10 o'clock at night. I got breathalyzed um, and I got caught. And she, I stayed in a hotel and she came to me and she was like, do you sincerely want help? Like sincerely just accept the help or not? And I said, yes. So she drove me to the airport and put me on a plane and I was on my way to what would be long-term treatment in Texas, you know? Um, and, and that's one major thing that I've learned in my recovery and whether I'm asking a human or I'm asking God, like when I ask for help, um, I accept the help no matter what it looks like. And I often don't like what it looks like or understand it. But when I ask for help and I get that help, um, I'm learning to accept it with more grace. So yeah, that's what brought me to Texas. It was my... 14th or 15th attempt, um, probably 14th because the 2-4 was my 15th, Um, you know, and it was a painful road to getting sober, you know, it took years and years.
0: Thank you. So, oh, oh, whenever you were talking about learning to accept the help, that we just had a conversation about that the other day. All right. Does anybody have any questions? First, we'll open it up. Okay. This usually happens no worries. I always have questions. Okay. So you came to the two four not newly sober. Correct. Right. So your, um, situation was a little different. You had been, I think you had like almost a, a year, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, um, I came to the Dallas 24 hour club on June 8th. My sobriety date is June 3rd. Um, I was in long-term treatment And um, I learned a lot about myself during that time, but there were still things that I was holding on to. Right. And I got kicked out because of dishonesty. I was being manipulative and lying, you know, I won't go into that story, but so I get asked to leave, or I asked them to ask me to leave treatment and I got put on the Greyhound bus or I got dropped at a Greyhound bus station um, about an hour away from Dallas. And, At that point, you know, thankfully I had worked all 12 steps and had a spiritual experience and I've had some practice with what to do when things can't come up, right? So, and when I say things, I mean the feelings. So after a year, I'm literally homeless and broke at the bus station, the Greyhound station in the middle of nowhere, Texas, where I don't know anyone. Um, But I did have this little flip cell phone, right? And I had known, I had two numbers memorized. My dad, who had some (laughs) long-term sobriety, and an ex-boyfriend in Florida, who was a big part of my addiction, right? Also somebody where there's abuse and trauma, but also my biggest enabler. And I really feel like at that point, like those two numbers were my crossroads, right? Like in step two, it talks about our two decisions jails, institutions, and in death, or accept some spiritual help. And also when I left that treatment center, they gave me a list of um, resources and the Dallas 24-Hour Club was on there. So when I was at the Greyhound Station, I had a few options, right? Like two phone numbers and God. So I hit my knees at a year sober at the Greyhound Station in Mesquite and I said, "A sincere, from the bottom of my heart, third step prayer. Right. And in that prayer, it's asking God to direct my life. And the other part is use me to be an example for other people of how you work. Right. But um, I asked God for some help. And in that, like I got up from that prayer and I called my dad and I called the Dallas 24 hour club and I was still very consumed with pride and ego and all these things. And I, and self-righteous anger. And I wanted to say something ugly like, you got a bed. But um, I said something very honest. I called and I said, I just got kicked out of treatment and I'm scared and I don't want to drink. So I took the bus to Dallas. And, um, you know, that's where I believe my relationship with depending on God really took off.
0: Well, Uh, I'm glad that, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just, before I forget, I want to say, um, so you talked about the third step prayer, right? And the first part being that, you know, directing your life. And then the second part being an example of how you work. And I feel like you did that whenever you came to the two, four, right? And which is kind of also like leading me into something else that I wanted to talk to you about too, was like, was like service. Um, so I don't know if we can do like a twofold question. I don't know, but I would love for you to talk about the the demonstration, like allowing God to demonstrate through you what he can do and like really what that looks like. And then how important like services, because I think that is just something that you, you just have like a, such a heart for service. Um, and that is something that I really, really no, love about you. And that, you know, you push me to want to be that way too.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So service and God working through me. So I have to go back to basics of this program, right? Like I believe that this book and this program and these steps work. And whether it's the idea of like, I'm selfish and self-centered and I need to get out of self and into service, or if it's at the end of a 10 step and um, I resolutely turn my thoughts to somebody I can help, the whole idea is out of self and into others. And early in my sobriety, it saved me so much because my head is so crazy and I can tell myself so many things. Uh, and, And I use this as a tool today, you know? when I get consumed with fear, resentment, self-pity, worry, any of these things, it's like out of self and into others, you know? And when we talk about service, it was different when I lived at the 2-4 or in a community in which there were people readily available because it's always going to the next person or what can I clean or what can I do? Or, you know, very tangible basic service levels. And and as my sobriety has evolved, what service looks like is very different for me. Um, So service is those things, right? And there's sponsorship. But service for me is like being unselfish and genuinely asking somebody, how are you doing? What do you need? Um, Can I pick you up for a meeting? Yes, but it's not the picking them up for the meeting. It's being emotionally available and open and also being available to share pieces of me that I don't love, you know, like that compassion piece of it. Like I absolutely love sponsorship, but I think it is so important for me to be connected and of service to my friends and the women that I am walking this path with, right? Um, I had a phone call this morning from a friend just hysterical. And, and it's like, okay, this is my opportunity to be of service. You know what I mean? And I and I never relish in anybody else's misfortune, but I got off that phone call and there was such a connectedness after that, because we together use this program to find solutions to move forward, you know? Um, so yeah, service is literally what my life is about.
0: Yeah. Anybody else have a question? I do. So- like, I, I too struggle with dishonesty and not like cash register honesty, but just like um, the things that I've like pushed down and ignored. And I often think that like thoughts are not dishonest. Um, how, like, what did your dishonesty look like early on? And then like, how do you identify it now for a 10 step? Great question. So
1: dishonesty early on is a mess. And I'm still a mess now. I love this program because there's so much forgiveness in it. um, And we have ways to sort it out, right? The inventory or 10 step. So dishonesty early on all over the place, right? But just because I have a thought or a feeling doesn't mean I have to act on it. So if I'm standing at my friend's house and there's a $100 bill on her counter and I pick it up, dishonesty right if I have the thought about picking it up that's not dishonest but the acknowledgement of where my thought life is is so important and I say that to say like sometimes in this program and I recently I've just had this experience where it's like dude like I am human I am going to have thoughts and feelings you know that aren't like pretty let's say that um, but it's not the thought or the feeling. I'm always going to have those. It's what do I do with them and how do I resolve them, right? So let's say that I'm, I want to go work at Starbucks and my friend and I go to apply together and she gets the job and I don't. Like I can feel disappointed, right? <laughs> um, I can feel disappointed and I can feel like, let's say, resentful toward her, but I can resolve that resentment, right? Right. Now, if I don't acknowledge it or do the work around it, and then act ugly to her, there's dishonesty in that and the bad motives. So it's like when I have that feeling, what do I do to attend to it so that I can be right with God and the people about me? It's it's holding on to those things without acknowledging them, and with that, it, it's you know there's courage in that vulnerability of admitting of how I think and feel. Um, so I have to acknowledge my thoughts and feelings and call my sponsor or somebody I trust and resolve them. So it doesn't get to acting dishonest. So the action doesn't come about.
0: That was really a good answer Colleen, Cause we kind of talk about that sometimes um, in groups about thinking that we shouldn't think a certain way or that like, I don't need to tell my sponsor about that. Right. And I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head. Like you, like we have to acknowledge those things. Because that's Mm -hmm. dishonesty in itself, not acknowledging them, right?
1: Absolutely, Uh, omission.
0: Yeah. Oh, that brings me to my next question, if nobody has a question. Okay. So you were the first person uh, to bring to my attention hiding behind words. Um, And we just just had this come up in, in accountability the other day. And, uh, where somebody was talking about withholding and I said, oh, withholding, that sounds like lying by omission. Um, because we want to like pretty up the words, you know, like how like our nightly inventory or something like, you know, I don't want to say, um, I gossiped. So I'll say, oh, I talked about this person. Right. Um, and so (laughs) you were the first person to talk to me about that. Also, I do kind of want to mention to you, y'all, some of you may know, um, but, a year ago maybe I went through a really rough time in my sobriety um where I was a stay-at-home mom and you know his um there's just a bunch of stuff that happened with my son's father and everything else and Colleen like showed up for me like watched my son so I could go meet with sponsees and meet with newcomers because that was what would because that's what she knew would help me and so but anyways that's also whenever we were I was writing my four column inventory that we talked about hiding behind words. And so I don't know, I think you know what I'm asking, but can you tell me or tell them or tell everyone the importance of like not doing that and why like um, in four column inventory that you make sure that you don't do that?
1: Of course. So, and this is just my opinion. If I want to be honest and clear, I have to call it as it is, right? One character defect that came up on my, my inventory was a vindictive, scorekeeper. And so it would happen in situations that I thought I was like justified or something. Like my friend didn't invite me to a party, so therefore I wasn't going to invite her to my party, right? And that's vindictive. I'm acting as a reaction to their behavior. And while I can twist it into like, oh, I just don't like her now, or say it in a pretty fluffy way, the truth is, is my behavior is motivated by a vindictive nature. So if I don't call it what it is, I'm making an excuse for myself and I'm continuing to allow the behavior to be sugarcoated or justified. So if I can break it down and call it as ugly as it is, there's two things about it. First of all, I'm gonna find it definitely objectionable. Well, more likely objectionable, I can't say definitely. Um, But when I tell the truth about what my defect is and what that behavior is, I can look at it, assess it and decide if it's objectionable, right? And also if, if I fancy it up and make it look better, Um, I'm not real with myself. I'm going to continue in the behavior and not get down to it. Those are the causes and conditions, right? Like, so when I call it like it is, I am able to look at it honestly. And furthermore, and the most important part is that I'm going to take those defects to God and ask for those things to be removed. Um, I, I, Find it more effective. So I can't go to God and be like, oh, can you stop allowing me to, can you remove me not liking people when they don't like me? That's not what it is. I behave vindictively when I'm hurt. So the more truth I can find, the more realistic I am, the more I can be clear with God and ask for those things.
0: Yes. I love that. Cause that was, that's kind of what you told me too, is Um, I think it was character assassination. I was like, I need character assassinate. Um, And uh, you told me, like, Stephanie, like, if these are what we have to, like, face and be rid of, you know? Um, And so, like, while writing inventory, it may sound, like, harsh, but, like, this is what I have to face and be rid of. Like, this is what I have to bring to God. And that's always uh, stuck out with me since. So... Thank you for helping me in my. I know. I'm glad that was helpful. Yes, of course. I know somebody else that was helpful for too. Our friend (laughs) that I love very much. Okay. Anybody else have a question?
2: I do. Okay, and I'm trying to write this down because everything she's saying is so great. But what is her fault? And if someone, I mean, maybe I just need to hit replay on that what she said what is her defect
1: in what scenario in
2: what case the the one you just said like okay like the scorekeeper I love it and that you know she didn't invite me to a party so I'm not gonna invite her so you're being vindictive see I would have never seen that like being an issue to me that's just them and here's me and I'm moving on so I would have never seen it the way you're presenting it
1: so you would have to have a personal attachment to not getting invited, right?
2: Well, yes, that would have burned me. Yes. I've been, uh, yes, emotionally pissed off.
1: Yeah. So so if you are invested or hurt by the fact you're not invited. Okay. I'm hurt. Then, okay. Right. So then my behavior is in reaction to how she acted.
2: Okay. Right? Okay. I'm not
1: responsible right. for her behavior. She could have not right. invited me because she could only invite ten people. She could have. It's the story that I make up about her motives.
2: Okay, that Do makes sense. Okay. Yes. Yes. I just couldn't quite. Okay. Yes. No, that
0: was really good for for clarity and everything. For real. Um,
2: yeah, because I was confused, about it. but no, that makes sense. If I'm hurt, there's a reason, and then it's my reaction towards it, and you know, there's something with me because I'm hurt.
1: Right. It's not that I wasn't invited to the party. It's the circumstances that I create in my head that create the resentment.
2: She may just forgot me on the list or, I mean, but my head goes, oh my God, here. And I, well, or, or she did intentionally. It doesn't matter. My reaction, my reaction is my character defect that I need to work on. Kind of. You know what I mean? And I've never saw that. I saw wronged me, and that was it. And I don't need to write that down. That's what I okay. Like we're looking at our
1: inventory, not the other person's. I'm not but, taking their inventory. It's and and it also talks about it being fancied or real. So it doesn't matter oh, what. Oh, I love it. Right. So, when we no. say fan feed in, in relation to the four step, it's okay. talking about delusional thinking and scenarios oh that I make up and
2: create in which I'm the victim. Okay. Love it. Thank you so much. That, yeah, now I have to do more work. Great.
0: <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. So, um, one of the other things that I also love about calling is your compassion towards others. Like I know like for me personally, if I am struggling to find compassion for another person, like you are somebody that I will call who is going to like be that for me. And so, and I remember one of the things you said, you probably have no idea that you even said this. This is why I always tell the girls that they have no idea the impact they're making on somebody else or who they're helping or anything like that. Um, Because you don't know like what you say, like what stands out to somebody, what helps somebody, you know? But so I would just love for you to talk on the subject of compassion and how do you find compassion for others?
1: Okay, well, I'm going to start with my lack of compassion in my active addiction
0: and how different
1: it is today to have compassion. My character personality um, while drunk was... I was so cold and so abrasive and so push everybody away um, and self-righteous and angry, right? Once I did an inventory and started looking at myself and why these were uh, parts of me, I learned and discovered that like I was fearful and prideful and I didn't know anything. So my best defense was an offense. And through that process of discovering who I was and how I acted, those are the things that I found very objectionable. So through a lot of work, I learned to like soften up and start to connect, right? Um, So I went from pushing people away to starting to find some commonalities between us, you know, and, and acknowledging my shortcomings. Once I start to figure out who I am and where I fall short and the dark, dark pieces of me, I'm able to then then have, um, you know, like it's that vulnerability. Once I could start to like get vulnerable and acknowledge myself and my weakness, the more that I can acknowledge, accept, and appreciate that in others. And and the beautiful thing is that once I've built a support system and, and Connection with other people in recovery, um, we don't all fall apart at the same time. So, once I start to create these relationships and my close friends are like falling apart or going through an incident, I'm able to be there for them in those moments, you know, like I build these connections or friendships, or even if it's somebody I'm meeting at a meeting for the first time and they're going through something, uh, by acknowledging my own pain, darkness, sadness, um, and getting in touch with who I am, it allows me to open up and connect and have that empathy and compassion and acknowledgement to connect with what they're going through. And just because I am listening to somebody, you know, compassion is... (sighs) empathy is understanding what someone's going through. It doesn't mean I have to go there with them, but I have to understand what loneliness feels like to understand your loneliness, right? Um, I have to understand what betrayal feels like or heartbreak feels like to acknowledge and be empathetic and compassionate toward yours, right? So until I learned and understood my own dark I wasn't able to connect and be an effective, supportive person to somebody else's. So through my own work, I think that I'm able to then help others.
0: Cool. Anybody else? All right. Um, I also want to point out too that Like it's easy to to have compassion for like your friends or like people that you love. It's not always easy to find compassion for somebody you may not like or someone that you don't agree with. Mm -hmm. And um, Colleen definitely has that part too. (laughs) And so how do you, which I don't want to, There's something else I want to ask you too, if nobody else has a question, but so first I want you to hit on a little bit of how you find the compassion for somebody that you may have like resentment towards, or that you may not agree with and all of that. Then I want to talk to you about the amends about your ex, which we'll get to in just a minute. If nobody else has a question. Okay. Go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: So it's, it's searching for their pain, right? So what other people how other people act and treat me really isn't about me right and this ha- and I had to have so many painful experiences to be able to really internalize mm-hmm. that but oftentimes like the truth is is that as human beings we're selfish and self-centered right So what you're going through in your home life or in your relationship, Um, you're gonna carry that with you and then have a conversation with me and you're gonna bring what's going on in your life into our conversation. Um, So for me, it is so important to acknowledge that what you're saying to me and how you say it may or may not have anything to do with me. And I have to look for that and I have to acknowledge the other person's emotional state because oftentimes like, when i'm having these difficult conversations when i find somebody who's two seconds sober and wants to yell at me because i gave them direction that they don't like and i'm the fault and i'm the problem and i it's me 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 right really it has nothing to do with me dude it's like what are you going through that has created this emotional state in your life and the more that i'm able to acknowledge this person is pain is in pain this person is hurting this is You know, we can actually find solution because the way that you're talking to me has nothing to do with me. Let's talk about what you're going through. That's creating this emotional tornado in your head.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Anybody else have a question? Okay. So this is going like, I guess, way off topic from what we were talking about, but that's okay. Because I knew this was something I wanted to talk to you about and you kind of mentioned him earlier, but so your ex was very abusive, correct? And he was also an active addiction and there was a lot of trauma there. And you mentioned going to treatment. And I'm pretty sure if I remember from you, whenever you told your story, he ended up like robbing you and all that kind of stuff too, while you were going to treatment. Is that right? Am I correct on that?
1: Yeah.
0: So, um, but then I was there whenever you went on your men's trip and you made amends to him. I would love if you could, could talk about that. And then what would you tell someone who has an amends to make, but they can justify, like, it's like that justified resentment where, you know, the big book talks about like, they may have hurt you more than you hurt them. Right. Um, So what would you say for, for all of that? I don't know if I worded that correctly, but yeah. (laughs) How
1: how about I just tell the story and talk about the amends? Perfect. Okay. Um, So I was in a long relationship with this man. We were in Florida together. We lived together. It was over five years. Um, When I met him, I was sober and he knows nothing of addiction or recovery, but he was sober at the beginning and then became full blown and unwilling to acknowledge or admit that he had a problem. Our relationship was characterized by mental, physical, emotional abuse. I was never good enough. You know, he'd say, make me a roast beef sandwich and then I'd make the roast beef sandwich and he'd be like, I wanted turkey. You know, um, just like a lot of psychological damage. Um, that took me a long time to even like acknowledge. And after that relationship, I was so damaged and so broken and I could acknowledge like physical abuse, but not emotional abuse and all this stuff, right? And so years passed and we still had, um, so I want to talk about the motives, right? So did inventory and inventory and talked to my sponsor about it and all this stuff. So I came to a place, where I was no longer like fueled by resentment in this relationship, right? I came to a place where I began to acknowledge my part, right? Because not only did he engage in that stuff, I came right back with it. So I would call him names or I would run and hide and disappear. And then he'd worry about where I was, Um, or I would just, often just take off, you know, Um, and other stuff, right? Like I was emotionally not kind to his soul um, and all these things. So we also had mutual property together and I had to go back to Florida and kind of get out of owning stuff with him. So it was about a year and a half into my sobriety and I go to make this amends trip. Um, And in my life at that time, I was solid in my sobriety, um, but I wouldn't say that I was my whole new life had been created yet. But anyways, I go to Florida and I rent this car and I'm driving to go make this amends. And um, he just doesn't show up when he's supposed to meet me at the bank. And then he doesn't show up the second time. And then he tries to manipulate me and go sign papers at night at a bar and all these things. Um, And and it was pretty steering me up, right? It was getting very uncomfortable. So um, I'm sitting in the apartment parking lot and I'm calling my sponsor and I'm calling my best friend and I'm like, I'm ready to do this amends and he's not showing up for it and it's making it even worse because now it's like my third attempt to make it. And the conversation was like, are you suiting up and showing up? Are you willing to make this amends? And I, yeah, the answer to all of those was yes. Um, and I was going to say, that's good enough, right? So I come back to Texas and another year goes by and I go to Florida and I make the amends approach again. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to go make this amends. And um, he happened to be in a fishing tournament and had been drinking, but he's like, come to this event. So I go to this event and I see him and he is not sober and I call my sponsor and I'm like, what do I do? (laughs) I don't think he's sober. And she goes, look, this is your opportunity. Like it's hard. Like you're going to just have to do it anyways. Like you're given the opportunity. So I make this amends and I'm no longer tied to him financially. And he is literally in my face telling me like, what I owe him and what I did to him. And he's literally like his fingers pointed at my forehead and he's calling me these ugly names and I'm doing everything that I can to hold it together and not react and not be spiteful because that's what the men's directions call for. Right. Um, and I give him space and I let him talk. And I, that is the most uncomfortable I've ever been in sobriety. But as I'm walking away from this Marina, I literally like, I can remember it as clear as day. As I'm crossing the street to the parking lot, I felt like this absolute dropping of any anger, any resentment and this like love come over me, you know? And in that moment, I had such an acknowledgement for how sick he was and how damaged and broken and, you know, like I, there's, there's the compassion, right? Like I could see his pain. I could see his hurt. Um, and and God changed me in that moment. Like God absolutely changed my heart through
0: that amends. Pulls at my heartstrings. Anybody else? All right. Well, we're getting to the top of the hour, but there's two things I want to ask you. So we were talking the other day and you had been to how many treatment centers?
1: Well, combination of houses and treatment centers, 15.
0: Okay. And you had tried to get sober for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there ever a time where you like thought this isn't going to work for me? Absolutely. And uh, what would you say to, to someone who's, who's feeling that? Wow. Okay. So
1: there's, there It's hard. It is so hard to come back into this program. It is so hard to muster up the courage and get it together and get into that detox and try one more time. The layers of shame and guilt and just absolute self hatred were so deep for me so many times. You know, I talked about my first detox and treatment. I um, checked myself in without telling anyone because, like, I was ashamed then. Well, put 15 more years of trying and like failing at getting sober on top of that. It was just so ugly. You know, there were times when I got sober on like a winning streak, I'd say, like when I was emotionally okay and excited about it. And there are times like I remember going into this detox and I had like lost my car in South Florida. I'd locked my keys in it. I stayed with friends for two days to try to like figure out what to do. Um, And finally, I just like left my car parked at the beach and like begged someone to drop me off at this rehab, this detox. Um, And I walked in with one shoe, a horrible sunburn, no money, hadn't showered in three days, like that desperation, you know, like. I didn't care where my car was, what happened, who I'd I'd lost my cell phone, I'd lost everything, right? Um, There was another time where I was on the side of the road and I begged a cop to take me to a detox, you know, like my alcoholism is ugly and desperate and despairing. um, You know, and so there have been so many times where I felt like I absolutely could not go on with or without it, the jumping off point that it talks about. Um and you know I have the I have these conversations. Like sometimes I just think it won't work for me. It won't work for me one more time. I have tried, I have failed, I have done all the things, I have surrendered, I had followed sponsor directions, I'd showed up at the meetings, and then I'm like desperately leaving a meeting to go to the liquor store or, or all these things. But the truth is, is like we don't know when or where God is going to meet us. And God's grace and love for us is so much bigger and deeper than I'll ever be able to understand. And the truth is, is like at each treatment, at each attempt, I learned something different, whether it be about surrender, love, a concept of a step, like every attempt, like nothing was a failed attempt. It's my idea that it failed because I didn't achieve long-term sobriety at that point. But I learned lessons along my way, each step of the way. Um, so each time that I tried and didn't succeed, I learned something. And all of those pieces have created who I am today. And without those failures and without those struggles, I don't think I would be able to reach the people that I can today. Um, you know, and it is always so dark before the dawn. Um, you know, and, and that's why it's such a wee program because I feel like we have a responsibility to meet those people and tell them our story and that it can work for them too. you know, it's a God deal. It's not a Colleen deal. I have nothing to do with this. Yes. I have to show up open-minded, willing and surrender at some point, but this is really God's job. I just have to meet him halfway not even halfway. I just have to show up and ask for the help and be somewhat willing to follow some direction.
0: Mm, Good. I, we were talking about the other night, how like, you never know, like when, I forget how you worded it, but you kind of just did about how like when God is going to meet your moment of willingness and your moment of clarity and when those two things are Mm going to so powerful. Absolutely. uh, Anybody else before I ask the wrap-up question? All right, Colleen, I think this has been really great. And I'm not just saying that because you're my friend. So my wrap-up question is always, if you could leave us with one takeaway, like something like if you, whether it's for somebody who is getting sober, staying sober, like that is something like, if you don't hear anything I say, hear this, what would the one takeaway you'd you'd wanna leave us with today?
1: to be gentle with yourself, but to be honest, forgive yourself and love yourself, but tell the truth, even if it's just to one person. So many times I've had this perfectionistic idea that my thoughts and feelings can't be like that, or my behavior is so unforgivable. Um, Because of this program and what we have in terms of God's sponsorship in these steps no matter what we do, there is a path to get us on a better path. You know, you are not irredeemable. You're not unforgivable. We can course correct if you're honest and open and willing to tell the truth and do the work.
0: Yay! All right. Well, thank you so much. You all have a, have a wonderful day. I love you so much. I love you too. I'll see you guys later Thanks for having me. Yeah. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thanks Colleen. That was awesome. Thank
2: you. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.